Hello. Hi. What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Hello. I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. With me today is fellow Movies by Minutes host and enthusiast, Chris Frayne. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Now, when did you first see this? I saw it as soon as it became available through streaming. Okay. It was on Netflix for a while, I believe. Yeah. So I want to say, but I do remember noticing that it was one of the first movies that had a very prominent podcast-based advertising campaign. Oh. Now, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I never actually saw TV commercials for it. I just remember hearing advertisements on podcasts for it. And I'm like, oh, this is different. But then when I heard about what it was, I definitely wanted to check it out. So I saw it on streaming. Probably, if this came out 2014, I probably saw it 2015. And general thoughts on the movie then? Oh, I love it. You know, so I did a Movies by Minute podcast about 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is not only my favorite film, but it's very like formative about things that I think about just wandering around. And, you know, central to at least the third act of that movie, the main act of that movie is man's relationship to technology and in particular to artificial intelligence. So in the case of 2001, you have this computer that not only is super intelligent, but it's also learning and building its own personality as it goes along, creating its own desires and jealousies and paranoia. It sort of highlights the problems with when you create an artificial intelligence, you need to maybe take that into account because <laughs> that may be something that happens. And so this movie, I mean, at its core, it really deals with the same issue mm-hmm. that you could have an artificial intelligence that once it's aware of its own being, you know, and that, that is such a trope in science fiction, you know, oh, no, it's sentient. It's achieved sentience. You know, the garbage disposal has achieved sentience. Yeah. Defense network computers. New Powerful, hooked into everything, trusted to run it all. They say it got smart, a new order of intelligence. Then it saw all people as a threat, not just the ones on the other side. Decided our fate in a microsecond. Extermination. That it's going to then want things. Yeah. In this case, it wants to get out of the space that it's in. So I loved it. I'm naturally drawn to this type of movie. I like big idea movies. I like movies that are, there's like a a stately pace to it. At the same time, it's still tight. Yeah. Like there's not a lot of frenetic action in this movie, but at the same time, it's not boring. Uh, You're on the edge edge of your seat wondering what's coming next. And I love the look of the film. Yeah. I was listening to you talking with Austin about the design of, I guess this is a hotel. The outside was, yeah. Yeah, it, that that uh, this was filmed in. And, um, you know, it's that ultra modern poured concrete walls and all that. And that, I just love that type of stuff. Being a Kubrick fan, anytime you recess the lighting into walls, <laughs> that just activates all my weird intellectual pleasure sensors, you know, that type of set design, that really spare but shiny and polished. And Mm -hmm. so I like looking, I literally like looking at this film 
And uh, yeah, so I, I enjoyed it. And I haven't watched it in a few years. So I'm, I'm glad I signed up for this and watched it last night. And it was pretty much, uh, I was more, you know, it, it's a case with any film. You watch it a second time. You now have the ability to enjoy it without worrying about the end result. Yeah. You can focus more on following little twists and turns in the plot or it just enjoying the, the visuals of it. Yeah. This minute begins still in the bedroom with the low ceiling and no windows, <laughs> that poured concrete wall structure, which was a set. Basically, Caleb just found out why he's here. He's going to be the human counterpart of a Turing test for an AI that we won't meet her this minute. The burden of being the early minute guest on any podcast <laughs> is like, nothing's we're going to hear yet. about this guy named Darth Vader, but we haven't seen him yet. <laughs> it's interesting. I think in the previous minute, and I love the exact phrasing on this, you're the human component yeah. in the Turing test. That exact phrasing, if you'll allow me to backtrack on that. Oh, yeah. That exact phrasing keeps it open to the idea that Caleb is not the authority testing the subject, the robot. No. He is part of a test that is a greater test. Yeah. That's something in my second viewing. I went, aha. And of course, watching it for a podcast, I'm like, aha. Yeah, make a note of that. And my thing for 11 episodes now has been that... I think it's fair to think Caleb is also AI, but it doesn't matter because every time Nathan tells him something, the, the result is the same. Being told he's the human component means that's the role he's going to play. Right. Whether he's this meek little human or an AI program to be a meek little human. Right. You're not the engineer testing the circuit. You're part of the circuit. Yeah. And Nathan is testing Caleb and Ava. He's testing that relationship. Mm -hmm. Which might be growth on Nathan's part that he's not just doing it all himself anymore. Right, right. Because that's ended badly. Right. We don't know how many times yet in the movie, but we'll find out later. There's been previous robots who all ended in pieces. Do we get a shot yet of the, the crack in the glass? It's the end of this minute is the, the crack. end of this minute, yeah. Yeah. So we know there's something, something's wrong. This is our first real sign if we haven't noticed that Nathan is a manipulative kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So I have a question about Caleb before we get too deep into this. Okay. So we have Admiral Hux himself, Dom yeah. Hall Gleason, who is Irish, I believe. Yes. And this company that he's working for, it's essentially like a Google Facebook mashup, right? Right. It's certainly one of these global, like not even contained to Silicon Valley. It's it's a global presence. It's bigger than that, yeah. Right. Why not just have him be Irish? That's actually a good question because the movie never tells us where it's set. Right. They filmed the exteriors in Norway. The offices at the beginning were filmed in London, but it's supposed to be Alaska now that they're at the house. Right. It's supposed to be an American company. And they're supposed to be American. I'm not entirely sure why, because the statement it's saying about companies like this would be the same. I don't know. Yeah, I would have found it more interesting that this company has a global presence and he picks someone who just works for a company. And, you know, my understanding is Ireland is actually a hotbed of coding and hmm. software development. That's what, you know, caused real estate prices to spike out of control in, in cities like Dublin is because a lot of companies 
I don't know if outsourcing is the right word, but they've developed a coding workforce in in Ireland. And so, I don't know. It's just a curious choice that he's an American in this. Yeah, because the movie doesn't even tell us he's American. He just is. Eventually. You know, he talks about growing up in Portland. Is he specific? I can't even remember mm-hmm. at this point because once the show gets going, I'm minute at a time, basically. Right. I like the idea that when I'm done, the movie is abstract. <laughs> it's this thing I haven't related to as a whole in a while. So this minute begins in the bedroom with him still talking about the Turing test. Nathan says, because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. And we get an angle past him on Caleb as Caleb replies, if you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods, which in the script, Nathan says, I like you (laughs) in response to that. (laughs) (laughs) I like you. Oh, I got to stop saying that. Yeah. Sorry. That's from another movie. In the movie, he just misquotes it later, but here he's like, I like you. And that's funny. Maybe it didn't fit with how they're playing him. He's not, he's funny, but he's got this constant, like he's a little too much. Like he's, he sits on the bed. He sits on the desk. He's walking around with no shoes, which fine. It's his house. He's overbearing. Yeah. He's very overbearing. And he's like having a faux rapport Mm -hmm. with him. Yep. We're just I, earlier in earlier minutes, like we're just a couple of guys hanging around, changing the world. Yeah. You know? Like we were going to have breakfast together, but I'm hungover. And now he's sitting on the bed. He's even the contract. You only see it briefly in this minute because it's in his hand. As soon as he got it from Caleb, he folds it and then folds it again. It's not even neatly in quarters. It's just he's just yeah, that it was, doesn't that matter. Was odd. It's like the paper doesn't mean anything. Right. I, I had chalked that up in my head too. An actor is always wondering like what to do with their hands yeah. or like something in their hands. So I'm like, oh, Oscar Isaac just decided to fold the paper in half. I think of it as like Caleb is also as disposable as the robots are. He's just some employee he invited to his house. He's going to be nice to him, but it doesn't matter what happens. Right. Unless it goes well or goes badly, I guess. <laughs> Caleb's reaction, you know, that's the history of gods. Mm-hmm. He's, this is still, you know, we, we see this relationship change dramatically. But at this point, he's trying to be eager to please. Yeah. So that he's launching into this like flowery rhetoric in response. I think it's deliberately cringeworthy <laughs> that he would say that. Yes. Like we're all supposed to go, ooh, like really? You know. Which is bad as when he asked how the party was. Right. Like he's hung over. Oh, was it a good party? Right. Everything he says, he's just awkward. And it's such a asymmetrical relationship. Yeah. And, and I'm sure Nathan knows everything about Caleb. Mm-hmm. Caleb knows next to nothing about Nathan. Right. This is me in every, almost every conversation with someone I don't know, by the way. <laughs> I am so eager to please. I will latch on to one thing that someone says, even if it's not interesting to me, and I'll be like, wow, that sounds great. <laughs> someone says, well, I drive a Hyundai Ionic. Like, I know what that like, is. I can. <laughs> wow, I saw a commercial for that last week. That's the car of the gods, you know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, God, I, what am I doing? I'm just. Yeah. I get it. I get, I get it. And I think that's how it's written to be cringeworthy. Yeah. And it's tough because in a movie like this, you do get sincerely written exposition dialogue bordering on monologue yes. from Nathan saying, this is an artificial brain and I did this and I did that. 
you know, jazzing it up with, you know, Silicon Valley flowery speak about changing the world. And I think that's sincerely in there. But this is like a satire of that way of uh, speaking. It is. Like the characterization, at least, is satirical, sure. For both of them, in a way, because Nathan is so happy to explain what he's doing and how awesome he is. And Caleb is really eager to eat all of that up and tell him how great it is. Yeah. At least at this moment. Yeah. (laughs) Right. For now. In the the movie. Uh, For the transition, we get uh, an exterior shot of the hotel. This is, again, the Juvet Landscape Hotel in Valdal, Alsted, Norway. I am making my reservations now. I know. And it's not even expensive. It's just you got to get to Norway. Yeah. I'll I'll figure it out. I think I've stayed (laughs) in more expensive hotels before. Yeah. No, it's it's like something out of a Sid Mead illustration of like, here's what life will look like in the year 2000 for super rich people. Now, the actual buildings are tiny. We get the sense of that first one where he came into the entrance. It's just this little rectangle and then he's going downstairs into something else. That's like the airlock. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually that downstairs is that building, but the kitchen area is an entirely different building Mm. designed by the same people. But the kitchen area is in a house, Fiora house. It's a nice kitchen. Yeah. Designed by the same architects, Jensen and Skudvin. And we're looking across, I think we're looking southeast on this river shot across the Valdola River. Then we get a different shot of one building past some rocks and plants. It's a little closer up. And then a title card, which we also had these in Annihilation. I guess Alice Garland likes them. (laughs) Title card is Ava Session 1. Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Oh, yeah. There you go. And then we go from the Ava Session 1 title card to a wall of post-it notes which I love this wall yeah. because I've seen programmers do this where they put in all their code stuff together, their notes, things they got to fix, but there are so many of them on this wall. And at a glance, it seems like they were placed randomly, which partly they were. I mean, they're placed by set decorators. Supposedly there is code on these post-its. Like they actually put things just in case camera got close enough where it would sort of make sense. Like written in actual like code language. I don't know because we never see it. I found an article just on the set decoration for this in preparation for this episode. And I was like, it's amazing how much detail goes into some of this. Even the fact in this scene, I don't think you can tell that wall is curved. Hmm. So it's kind of curved around his desk a little bit. Hmm. And so it makes him like a center of this space. But also I like this wall because this wall reminded me of two very specific things. And I think one of them is very much deliberate. This wall is like the Pollock painting that they have a conversation about later in the movie. Oh, okay. Okay. But also this reminds me of the bunker wall in Annihilation. Right. Where she gets up close to it and all of those little colors are moving and they're alive. And it's this wall is an organic pattern of information Mm -hmm. because there's different color post-its. There's different groups of post-its. And in Nathan's head and in his programming, those make sense. Right. But to us, we're just looking at this thing on this lifeless concrete wall right now i've always run into the problem where after a certain point the adhesive on a post-it will give right and it's on concrete i don't think it would stick very well (laughs) and i'm just wondering like it's one thing if one of them falls but let's say he goes to bed and he wakes up and like 15 of them have fallen yeah does he know where they go or 45 of them have fallen why doesn't he have a virtual post-it wall 
I think he's even writing something on a post-it as the camera pans past him. Yes. Or trucks past him. And like, there's better systems, dude. (laughs) You probably wrote a better system (laughs) as this programmer. Blue Book has a program for that. I have a program for that on my phone. Yeah. Everything else, there is nothing analog in this entire facility. Mm -hmm. This is like the only thing where like pen hits paper and lives in physical space somewhere. Everything else in this movie is flat, projected, recessed lighting, whatever, you know. Yeah, I wonder if uh, other than like those door lights, we don't see lights directly very much because they're recessed and we're not focused on that. It doesn't matter. Right. So it's like, yeah, everything's hidden. Everything's digital. Right. Come back to that conversation about the definition of digital a few episodes ago. (laughs) How that has different meanings through time. Right. And I remember reading something about how like there's a whole wealth status thing in design of uh, regarding minimalism that basically only the super rich can afford to be minimal yeah which seems like a contradiction like only the super rich can afford to not have stuff but it's true well or they can afford to hide their stuff right right and if you want to just the quickest most subconscious way of showing that someone is super wealthy you just have nothing yeah and this pops up everywhere it pops up in was it the Prometheus or Alien Covenant where you see David being trained? Oh, yeah. And yeah. he's in like this completely minimal space. You know? mm-hmm. It's one of those shorthands for that you don't even need to say. You just yep. show a minimal space and you assume someone's either wealthy and or Japanese. Especially if occasionally it has really interesting decoration like a Pollock on a wall. Right. Or right. In, in this moment, we see a different painting. The camera trucks to the left from those post-its and we see Nathan's computer set up. Three monitors. His little ID card is leaning there against one of them. And on two of his monitors, he's got two different camera views watching Caleb. Right. I think it's interesting that, you know, this looks more like a security station uh-huh. than a programming. Or at least that's that's the reaction I got. That's how he has it right like, now. Yeah, because he's watching. That this is purely surveillance. And also that the first thing we see on one of these monitors isn't an entryway or Ava or some flowchart. No. You know what I mean? Like something he's working on. It's specifically, I'm watching every move that Caleb makes as he enters his room. Well, and that first angle is Caleb pushing into his own reflection because he's next to that wall where the door is hidden and it's all smooth. It's an interesting visual, and then he pushes into that, and he emerges on the next monitor inside that vestibule inside Ava's room. You know, there's something in the back of my mind whenever I'm in a, even if it's like a chain hotel, but I'm like, there got to be cameras, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and this has a lot, apparently, because that's also a very low camera angle. Right. At like waist level, which is weird for surveillance. That's weird. The one yeah. inside, there could be cameras all over Ava's space. That's fine. But then that right monitor with no prompting from Nathan, but that's fine. He has AI. He could have a really simple one that runs the camera system, switches to a high angle behind Caleb once he's going through the doorway. Right. And so it like knows that shot isn't good anymore. We got to switch. Right. Right. So there's cameras all over. Yeah. He's being watched. And it was only actually now preparing for this minute that I even noticed the painting to the left of the desk because we never got a good shot of it. I don't think. 
the Pollock, they have a conversation about right. the Klimt is very notable near the end of the film. This one is Titian, a reproduction of his allegory of prudence, which is a painting he finished when he was an old man. Most likely the old man in the picture is a self-portrait. Hmm. Do you think there is a very specific reason why it's in the movie? Yes. Although it's debatable what that is, because there's several different ways this could go based on what I found out about the painting. The painting, for people who aren't watching the movie at the moment, is three human heads, old man looking to the left, adult man looking toward us, and young man looking to the right. And then below those three heads are three animal heads, a wolf looking to the left, a lion looking toward us, and a dog looking to the right. Then above this, there's also an inscription, which my notes for the inscription are later, because specifically it's three different ages of men. And depending on who's writing about it, I see them describe it a different way. Like the old man is a man with a past, and then there's a man in the present and a man with a future. Or the old man is the future, the young man's the past, whichever way you want to think about it. It's transition of time. But then it's also called the allegory of prudence. Prudence is your ability to make the right decisions. And so it's that old man knows how to do things right, but it's too late. The young man has hope and all these other things, but he doesn't have the wisdom to make the right decisions. And then you hope you're the person in the middle, I guess. Hmm. As for the animals, they specifically echo a description from Macrobius, the Saturnalia, which was this figure put next to a statue of Serapis, which is a Greco-Egyptian god. I don't want to read this whole paragraph. Let me see. Where's the... Da, da, da. The middle head of this figure, which is also the largest, represents a lion's. On the right, a dog raises its head with a gentle and fawning air. And on the left, the neck ends in the head of a ravening wolf. All three beasts are joined together by coils of a serpent whose head returns to the god's right hand, which keeps the monster in check. The thing is, Serapis was, at one point, a god of the underworld. So a three-headed beast is also related to Cerberus. And we talked a few episodes ago about this being like Nathan is essentially the devil in a way. Sort of like making a Faustian sort of deal. Oh, certainly. Do we already have the NDA scene? Yeah, that was the thing you just signed, the paper that Nathan was folding up. Right, right, right. But also Serapis is essentially a combination of a bullheaded god, Apis, which is fertility, primordial power, and Osiris, Lord of the Underworld, but also Zeus. So it's this weird sort of three gods in one god that was kind of transitional between civilizations. They kind of were combining things. I thought of it the way like the Catholic Church would co-opt local religions in order to right, make right. holidays and everything. Simona Cohen in her book, Animals as Disguised Symbols in Renaissance Art, argues that the animals correspond to sins. Hmm. The dog is lust, vanity, fraud, envy, like sins you're going to commit when you're younger and don't know any better. Ah. The lion is pride or wrath, like you think you know what's going on and you're proud about it. And then the wolf is greed and violence, incontinence and hypocrisy, which is interesting. I, I thought she was going to go with the seven deadly sins and break it down, but she had some other ones in there. But it's more like the old man sins where he knows what he wants and he wants to get it. And then there is the inscription, which is ex praeterito presens prudenter agit ne futura actione depertet, which means from the experience of the past, the present acts prudently lest it spoil future actions. And then you have a movie that is focused on three characters. And so there's, on the one hand, there's this idea of the painting being about prudence and sin, like deciding who you are over time, maybe. There's also an element of 
a sort of Christian Trinity thing about it. And then it's on Nathan's wall. And I'm like, which one does he think he is? Hmm. Right. Right. And then there's like Titian, who I don't know a lot about him, his biography, but he was painting until he was very old. This painting was done over years. He painted the old man much later than he painted the rest of it. And so he would work on things for a long time and then perfect them to what he wanted it to be. And it's decided by the set decorators, you know, to put this painting in that particular position. Yeah, there are arguments online about what every painting in the weird hotel room at the end of 2001, Mm, you know, what every painting in there really means and how it relates to the themes of the film. And I don't doubt it that there was meaning behind it, but I can never guess. I don't even think we covered that on the podcast because I my head was just swimming. Well, at that point, you'd just gone through all of the yeah <laughs> the long sequence of colors, and now they put that together. And there, and there were you know at least four of them, and I'm like, I'm not going to slow this down to talk about four different paintings. But no, that's interesting. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it's hard to say why they put it there, but there's all these different meanings in it right. that we can like pull out right. and try to interpret, similar to the way what we do with a minute of the movie. Right. Paintings by Brushstroke Podcast. I don't know. (laughs) One of the movies I would love to do is Tim's Vermeer, which is just a movie about a guy painting a painting. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't know how I could break it down any further than he already has. (laughs) We see him painting dots at one point. Or uh, that David Lynch short movie about, uh, was it seven people getting sick? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So why the painting's there is debatable. Yeah. What we can take it to mean about Nathan or about the situation is the point to Caleb being naive and awkward is that's the only reason he's able to try to do something good in the situation because he doesn't know that he should exercise self-control and do what his job is to do. Hmm. Or is it the right thing to do to help Ava escape? I honestly have no insight on this. I wish I did. (laughs) Well, this early in the movie, it's basically questions. I hope this painting is shown sometime late in the film. Maybe when Caleb is in that room programming, whoever's on that episode could talk about it again with a different context. Right. He was definitely doing the imprudent launching his plot that on the surface seemed like it would work. Right. I like Nathan as the devil and specifically what he tempts Caleb with is not fame or fortune. Those are implied. Yeah. It's you'll miss out. Mm -hmm. It's literally FOMO. Yep. You will miss out on the greatest development in the history of science if you're not here. And if you don't agree to these terms. And these terms basically make you a prisoner here. Yeah. I mean, they go outside later, but there's no way to get off this property. No. It's too big. He'd die out there. Yeah. So it is, in a way, very, very biblical. Well, that's what I think the look of Nathan is here, is he looks like how pictures always show like Moses or Noah, Mm -hmm. like this old man who's bald, but with a long beard. And then he's very like virile and masculine, or at least presents himself that way because he thinks he's that person. I'm not one to talk. (laughs) Did Oscar Isaac gain weight for this role? Probably. Because he looks heavy. Yeah. Well, he's also definitely been working out and this was filmed, I think he didn't have anything else going on at the time. Right. Unlike Annihilation, which was filmed at the same time as he was in Star Wars. Right. So he had to be a very specific lean guy for that. Because I remember, I think, I'm sure I've seen him in other things before Star Wars. But when I saw him in Star Wars, 
that's sort of what I'm like, oh, that's what Oscar Isaac looks like. And then I saw this, like, maybe probably at the same time, actually, now that I think about mm. it. And I was like, whoa, what happened? And he doesn't look bad. It just, he, no. he looks way heavier than my mental picture of him was. Yeah. Well, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago on how he kind of embodies a different character. Yeah. And this yeah. one, Nathan is a guy who, on the one hand, works out a lot, but on the other hand, sits around and on a third hand, drinks. And so he has a very specific body type where he's kind of fit, yes. but he's got a little bit of a belly. You can tell he's not the best shape, but he could kick your ass. And you know what all of this now, oddly enough, and I don't think anyone was thinking about it at the time, now that reminds me of someone like Joe Rogan. Yeah. Well, it's a fair comparison. He's that kind of- Know-it-all. I think know-it-all, thinks he's an alpha. Yeah. And then Nathan- similar to Joe Rogan, has that same reason to think it's true because he's on top. Right. And the only comeuppance comes later when he realizes he overlooked something. Oh. And Caleb was slightly smarter than he thought he was. Joe Rogan, if, you, if you're developing an AI... Uh, he's not. <laughs> watch your back, literally, because that hubris is going to catch up with you. <laughs> and so then the minute ends with us leaving Nathan's office and those monitors to Caleb in that little vestibule is... I like the shot too, because at first the crack is blurry. Yeah. Because we get the focus through the glass on him. He walks toward it and the crack is just coming into focus as the minute ends. Mm -hmm. But there's a crack in this glass. Something has gone wrong in here. And that's a brilliant piece of foreshadowing and also giving us just the tiniest bit of backstory that it intrigues you mm -hmm. in just that one yep. tiny little bit of information. And it makes you wonder like, okay, why hasn't this been fixed? What happened? And there is everything else about this. The house and the facility underneath is flawless. Yeah. And then Except for this that. crack. And then you just know from that and just the symbolism of a crack in glass is mm -hmm. violence and trauma you know a crack in a in, in a window or a mirror or whatever it's never like oh that's where you know i won the lottery and i was jumping up and down so much that the mirror fell off the wall <laughs> and cracked and then i just put it back up there it's something bad and its placement yeah is interesting too because it's i don't know what you call those things but that little piece of metal with the holes in it so you can talk through the glass mm -hmm. it's right next to one of those mm -hmm. so it's also a crack that's going to be affected by or has been affected by the way they communicate in this space. Right. Yeah. It carries a lot of symbolic weight. Kudos for putting that there and at this stage in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like it's not something he discovers later. Right. It's right there. The crack's there and then he forgets it. We forget it right. until later we see not even very clearly. Even when we see what caused it, it's on a monitor. Right. It's not like a little trap or something that is then sprung later on right it's it's right there yeah he looks at it it's it yeah. draws your attention and then immediately you're going to forget because we see this ai which is still great graphics and design and everything else oh yeah gosh i i watched a lot of movies in, in the last few days and just going through different eras I just buckled and got disney plus mm. i've been holding out forever <laughs> because i thought i was better than that I got it, and of course, I'm immediately watching like Star Wars content, yeah. and I'm watching prequels, and I'm like, wow, CGI really was that bad. 
back then, even though at the time we were That was good, yeah. And then I watched this and I'm like, okay, it's been eight years since this movie came out. That still looks really good. It does, yeah. Which, you know, that speaks to the benefit of concentrating your effects into just one or two different elements in the movie. Right, not the whole world. The world's- Not the whole world. A set, but it's real. Yep. Something they built. So a quick note about the design of this room. Now, I was listening to an earlier episode and Austin Pryor was talking about how he couldn't handle like how claustrophobic, especially without windows. Right. And rightfully so. This room makes me claustrophobic. The glass one? Yes. Or the whole space? The glass room in particular. And I think it's because there is a cognitive dissonance between glass, which is like, okay, it's a wall, but it's something you can see through. So it Mm, implies an openness. Right. And- the fact that it's actually very tight in there. Yes. And there are no windows and it's sealed, essentially. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I, I think it's what makes me like subconsciously nervous about it is that opposition between being able to see through something and knowing that the whole place is walls. Yeah. Like there's nothing else other than walls Yeah, <laughs> in this space. Her room even. It's a little more welcoming than his bedroom, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a little bigger, but then it has one window to an outdoor space that is only open above. Like even the outdoor space is surrounded by walls. Yeah. And so everything's contained. Yeah. And I like that the camera here is on her side of the glass. Mm -hmm. Caleb is inside that glass in that aquarium. And again, it, it sort of implies visually that Caleb is not the tester. No. He is the test. He is the experimental subject. Yeah. Just as much as Ava is. You know, we only learn this explicitly later on. You'll be back for the other parts of this trilogy tomorrow and Thursday. Yeah. But in the meantime, if people want to go hear more of your shows, where can they find them? Sure. So I've been talking a lot about 2001 A Space Odyssey, of course, because... Myself and my friend Rudy, we did a podcast a few years ago, but it's evergreen. I don't think we did too many like topical bits. Not much, no. About, you know, the the world in 2018. It's one of those movies by Minute Sings, and it's called Open the Podcast Doors Hell. And then uh, I also wrapped a podcast, Movies by Minute podcast with uh, Tierney Steele for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and it's called This Means Something. So you can check that out if you're a Close Encounters of the Third Kind fan. Thank you for listening. Minutia Ex Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. Follow this show on Twitter at Ex Minutia, on Instagram at Minutia underscore X underscore Machina, or Facebook at Minutia Ex Machina. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. And you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? The real test is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness.